Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is The Reasonable Voice, Marcello Rolando, and I welcome you to The Reasonable Voices radio talk show. Before we get started with my interview today with author John Rachel, I'd like to mention a website, http colon backslash backslash f as in frank dash r dash e dash e dot us. And I'll mention it again at the end of this segment. My guest today is halfway around the world in Japan on a different time zone, obviously. It's midnight where he is, so we're going to jump right in with author John Rachel, living in Japan now. He's written three books. We want to talk about at least the peace dividend and the candidate contracts and what that could mean. We hear politicians saying a lot of things, but uh, John has put it in writing and in great detail in his books. John Rachel... I guess good night as well as good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. It, it just flipped over to midnight, so I guess uh, it's morning here too. Okay. So good morning to both of us. How long have you been up exactly. today, John? Well, I, I actually get up quite early. Uh, my, my wife is a school teacher, and I get up with her in the morning and see her off. Uh, Japanese teachers work 12 to 14 hour days. Mm. I've never seen anything like it, but they're very dedicated. Uh, it's it's astounding the work ethic. My wife is uh, also Asian and and also a teacher, by the way. And I get up and see her off. Hey, how about that? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it, but you're right. You know, we can't. Uh, we certainly shouldn't overlook mentioning. You obviously are a lot closer to the most recent earthquake in Japan than we are. Is there any information? Any reaction? Um, how did it affect your life? That sort of thing, if you don't mind. Well, we're quite a distance from that, so it didn't affect our lives uh, directly in any way. Uh, my, I, I'm getting the news as you are, and uh, I think 42 people died, and some 90,000 people are displaced. It was a very, very severe pair of earthquakes. We, yes. We, uh, we lived through the first one, which was uh, 6.4 or 6.5, and then the next day... They got the real one. 
Yeah. Uh, the first one was part of a previews of coming attraction. Yes. And, and my, by the way, my wife uh, lost cousins in the Kobe earthquake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so earthquakes are a very tangible and very uh, terrifying part of our lives here, unfortunately. Yes, I can understand that my wife's parents live in California, and my wife has a sister in Tokyo. So, anyway, our hearts certainly go out to all of you, to the world, because so much is happening to our world. But we're not here necessarily to talk about the effects of weather or climate change today, although I do think financial and economic stability is affected by the weather, climate change, politics, as well as it's a two-way street. Each affects the other. But we we want to talk about how, to, to use the title of uh, John Rachel's book, one of them, Taking Back Our Democracy, a step-by-step plan for radical electoral reform and third-party empowerment. Uh, now, that right. is a description of the candidate contracts. So what are you suggesting, John? idea goes back to 2012 mm-hmm. uh, and if you remember at that time uh, we had we were still as we are now recovering from the 2008 economic disaster uh, we were hearing a lot of talk a lot of promises as as always yes things were going to get better and nothing seems to improve in fact things seem to be uh, steadily in decline mm-hmm. so I started giving a lot of thought to the, the, the process process by which we try to uh, identify and select our candidates. And uh, the one thing that became clear to me was there was an enormous gap between what candidates said on the, on the campaign trail yes. and what, what they, uh, how they performed when elected. And I thought, you know, if we really have a representative democracy, there's got to be some way to eliminate that gap. So I started brainstorming, and I, I, I hate to admit this, but I really got the idea from Grover Norquist. Grover Norquist uh-huh. put together one of the most effective programs for reining in legislators in the history of the country. It was called the No Taxes Pledge. Yes. And, and in fact, I called my plan, I called the original contracts, I called them pledges, and then I decided more recently to, to go just go with the contract. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very solid uh, a, a commitment. Yes. A sounding commitment. But anyway, the whole uh, force of his particular strategy was predicated on one principle, and that is job security. Yes. This is what our legislators spend most of their time addressing. They don't spend uh, as much, much time as they'd like us to think worrying about our problems, they're worried about the next election. Mm-hmm. And the next election equates to raising a lot of money. So they spend most of their time raising money to get reelected. And I thought, well, there, that is the Achilles heel of the whole electoral uh, process. That is, that is the point of vulnerability. If we can threaten the uh, job security of these legislators, then we have a very effective leverage in terms of uh, modifying their behavior. Yes. Okay, we all know that big money has corrupted the process, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, you know, what's the most direct approach? Mm-hmm. So I started 
I'm looking at issues. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I'm gonna uh, cite some statistics. Sure, please. Seventy-five percent of Americans. These are fairly recent polls. Seventy-five percent of Americans want a federal minimum wage of twelve fifty per hour. Sixty-three percent of Americans want fifteen dollars per hour. Seventy-five mm percent -hmm. of voters want fair trade agreements. Seventy-six mm. percent of voters want a cut back on our military spending. Seventy-six mm. percent of voters want U.S. completely out of Afghanistan. Okay, I can go on. Let me cite the one that just blows my mind. Ninety-three mm percent -hmm. of American voters want GMO labeling on their food. Now, we're not talking about eliminating GMOs. They just want to be able to pick up a jar of peanut butter mm -hmm. and have it say on there if it has a GMO product in it. Mm -hmm. That's all. Just a label. We can't. Okay, all these things. Including things like raising taxes on the rich and so forth. These are all 70, 75, 80 percent of the public want these things. And what do they all have in common? None of it gets done. So I thought, you know what? If we really want to put these future politicians, and of course that would, that would mainly mean incumbents, the incumbents that are running, between a rock and a hard place, we need to. Find a way to commit them in some very, very solid, uh, forceful way mm -hmm. to doing what we want done. And I came up with the idea of, uh, it's a very simple idea, it's easy to understand and easy to embrace, a contract. A contract between a candidate, a, a future elected official, mm -hmm. and his constituent. Hmm. Very simple. And... It would be legally binding in the sense that it is it is written in the form of a contract. Yes. It is uh, at the language of a contract. And most importantly, contained in the contract are specific penalties for violating the terms of the contract. Mm. So this is the whole idea of candidate contracts. So we can get into how they're applied and how we would put this forth. But that's the idea. You know, I have a friend who... Um is uh, very much involved in this kind of conversation. He more, he's more focused on n new renewable energies, but his whole thing was politicians tend to say anything, and we all know they're not telling the truth or they can't do half of what they say. Why don't we, why don't we hold them accountable? Why isn't there a fine of some sort? So here you are with an even better idea going further with a contract and with penalties, like with any contract, and your breach of contract, and it really is serious. But I wonder, as we talk, I'm reminded, and nothing against Obama, I think he he inherited uh, a, a colossal mess and has done reasonably well in uh, correcting what one can do. Like it, I always say, it's like gaining weight, you know, it's so easy to put it on and so difficult to take it off. Well, it's easy to get into a recession if a few greedy people don't care about the rest of us. But it's very difficult to get out and restore jobs and confidence. That's the thing, for people to believe in themselves and, and their country and their economy. I don't know if they're going to believe in the government for any time soon. But back to candidate contracts. Is this like James Madison, uh, a new Bill of Rights? Is it, Are you thinking in terms of that or like that? district by district uh -huh. voters, a core of activists 
literally deciding what's important. And see, and the, the nice thing about a candidate contract is it's completely flexible. Yeah. Let's say that you live in a in, in a district where the yeah, there's one uh, I think in, in Pennsylvania, Scranton, Pennsylvania, or someplace where the average age of voter is over forty. Okay, these people are going to really be concerned about Social Security. Yes. So you would have a candidate contract that said, I will protect Social Security. I will whatever it needs to say. Uh-huh. You might have another district that has a college town. Those kids are going to be worried about minimum wage. Those mm-hmm. kids are going to be worried about affordable college and student loans, uh, debt relief, and so forth. So the, the point is that the set of contracts that are presented within each district uh-huh. are, are really customized to the needs of that particular district. Uh-huh. But if you go back to the, some of the statistics cited, you're going to find across the nation a great deal of commonality. I, I would venture to say that all of the contracts that would be prepared for all of the legislative districts would probably have five, six, or seven of the items that I mentioned. I mean, look at these percentages. Yes. If 80% of the voters want Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision repealed, well, that 80%, that's, that's huge. That's huge. It is. five voters in the whole country. So you're going to have a lot of commonality. And let me be very candid. When I started this out, I was not thinking of trying to reform our current legislators. To me, most of them are beyond redemption. Mm-hmm. My idea was to kick them out of office, literally mm. to, to, to throw out most of the incumbents. So, and, and here's how you do it. Whether it's, a, let's say you've got, and I wrote a book. My first book was called An Unlikely Truth, and it was set in Dayton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, it's a very military town. The incumbent had, had been, a, had a successful run for like four or five terms. He was established, he was loved by the local community, but unfortunately, his actions didn't meet his campaign promises. Mm-hmm. So I had a candidate, an alternative candidate. First of all, they went around in the community and they found out what was important to that particular district. And then they drew up contracts and they waved it. First of all, they confronted him. They confronted him at one of his political rallies and said, are you willing to sign on the dotted line on these issues? And mm. he said, no. I mean, come on. I'm your congressman. You can trust me. <laughs> well, we thought we could trust you, but, but apparently we can't trust you. Yes. So we're asking to take the guesswork out, to take the ambiguity out of this, sign the contract. Oh, he, he refused to do it. So the, the, uh, actually in that district in my book, I have a Green Party guy. He was the guy who signed him. And then they didn't have a lot of money, but what they did was they made it a camp. They made it news. Uh-huh. I mean, let's face it, news loves cage fighting. They love confrontation. Yes. They love, they love to have, uh, the politicians, you know, uh, uh, duke it out. So they made it, they, they created a lot of events. They went to like the VA hospital. He wouldn't sign a contract to reduce, to get the troops out of Afghanistan. So they went to the VA hospital and they, they're all wearing shirts. Why won't Congressman so-and-so sign the contract on, on Afghanistan? And they're sitting there with all these vests with their legs and arms blown off. Yes. So they create events. 
and then they picketed, and they did all sorts of, a lot of street stuff, mm-hmm. and they got in the This is how they got free publicity. They used the contract as a tool to draw the media into this, into the contest. So that's the way, I, that's the way my original conception. If, indeed, one of these incumbents or his uh, major party opponent is willing to sign the contract, great. We'll have somebody go into Congress, and they are absolutely bound by the language of this document to at least do the things that we want done on mm-hmm. Social Security and raising taxes and Medicare and all those things. Yes. That's a big step forward. You know, that's yeah. a big step forward. So tell me, this all sounds grand and it also sounds doable i mean you know more and more people are rallying in the streets and in the and steps of capitol hill too uh but tell me how does candidate contracts do sort of an in run around big money in politics in an election is there a path there if you can convince all right so let's let's just set up a situation. Let's, let's just say the two major parties, let's not even get into the Green Party and Libertarian, let's say the two major, let's say that the Democrat is behind 20,000 votes in a district. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing you do is you go out and you collect signatures on what I call a petition pledge. And what that says, you, you show the voters, you know, you go up to somebody and you say, look, I can see that you're, uh, you're getting on in years. Are you for protecting social? Absolutely, I want my social security. Sure. So they sign up a pledge that says, I will only vote for a candidate who protects social security and works to improve the benefits of the social security program. Same thing. For me. So you collect petitions first, mm-hmm. and you get voters on your side. Now, once you get to about 20,000, guess what you have? You've, mm. got, you've got a lethal weapon in your hand because you can wave this in the face of the incumbent and say, you know what, we got 20,000 people here, mm. which, by the way, is the amount of your lead in the election. Yes. <laughs> <over> your <laughs> who say that they're not going to vote for you unless you sign this contract. And if she says no, then you go to the other candidate and say, look, you want to get elected? We can hand you 20,000 voters, or we got petition 20,000 people to say they will only vote for somebody who signs this contract and this one and this one and this one. Mm-hmm. So, what I tell people, it's not so much a legal document as it is a political lever. Yes. It's a way of forcing these guys to be clear and to make a commitment on policies that matter to the American people. I've been told, as I, when I go on the Hill and talk to congressmen, I've been told by a number of them, uh, this clicking a mouse uh, for a petition online is, is okay, but it doesn't really move them as much as a written petition or you're actually showing up in person. So I think the fact that it's, it's written, it's signed, it becomes more real for them. So I can see how that could work. And it holds, as you say, it will hold the elected representatives accountable directly to the voters, which is another key way to get around the big money people who are trying to buy the election or who are buying the election. We're going to have to go in a bit. Is there anything else you want to tell us about taking back our democracy and candidate contracts? Because we have a lot more to cover, and we're going to do that in the next segment. But take us out 
what is that bottom line for you? How does this work, this contract, uh, candidate contracts, with or without a third-party candidate? It works by people in their own community talking and listening to one another. And I, I just wrote a whole, I'm right in the middle of writing a whole series of uh, blogs on my blog site uh-huh. called Putting Boots on the Ground. And then it has Birkenstocks and parentheses, kind of like a little joke because liberals all wear Birkenstocks. Putting Boots on the Ground. And what it says, the first, first one is you need to lean across the fence and talk to your neighbor. Yes. Don't talk politics. Don't talk ideology. Don't talk liberal, conservative, Green Party, uh, Republican, Democrat. Just talk about the problems because politics are personal. Mm-hmm. When they pass a bill in Washington, D.C. in that bubble, it affects what goes on. If they don't raise the minimum wage, you have to work three jobs to get by. Yes. If, they don't, if they don't put the money forth for your school, your school falls down, and your kid doesn't have any place to get a good education. I mean, everything that's going on there affects you personally. So don't talk about the politics. Talk about the problem and then decide what's important. Everybody needs to decide what's important, and then you're going to have to have a core in every congressional district mm-hmm. of people active. And we have that now, by the way. We have that with Bernie Sanders. We even got Trump people that are out there in the streets. So I say, instead of just waving signs, yes, do something very solid and constructive that can directly impact the behavior of these legislators. And that's what the candidate contract does. And if people want a, a short version of what this whole theory is, I recently wrote a book, and it's only 56 pages, and it just condenses it all down. It's almost like a, it's almost like a manual for your refrigerator or something. You know? mm-hmm. It's very, very... It's called Fighting for the Democracy We Deserve. Yes. Give us... A, we, we need to go, and we can, we can get this on the other end. We need to take a break now. But give us a, a, at least a website for your blog and where we can find your books, even though we will repeat that okay. again in the next segment. Okay, it's J.D. Rachel, just the letters, J.D. Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, dot com. There are links at the top of the page, slow bullets are my... Uh, are my blogs, my political blogs, uh-huh. books, music. I've been involved in a lot of things, but definitely look at the books because all the books are, are listed right there and you can see what they're all about. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. We're talking with John Rachel, author of at least three books, working on blogs as well as other things, uh, Taking Back Our Democracy, Fighting for Democracy We Deserve, and we've been talking to him about the uh, candidate contracts Uh, But we'll be back and we're going to discuss the peace dividend as well as fighting for the democracy we deserve. Stand by, stay with us, we'll be right back, don't go away. As promised at the beginning of the show, that website again for John Rachel is http colon backslash backslash f dash r dash e dash e dot us.
now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Sometimes a movie comes along that absolutely confounds the critics. Perhaps they have seen so many films they believe they've seen it all. Then, when a movie like Words and Pictures comes along, they are too tempted to focus on the all-too-familiar cliché. We understand that's their job, and that's all very well and good, unless they miss a film's freshness and inherent intelligence. Words and Pictures is an honest exploration of how we best communicate as human beings, whether more accurately with the written word or with pictures. And it's a love story. Clive Owen plays the very model of the alcoholic poet, and Juliette Vinoche is the brilliant artist hampered by painful arthritis. Roles that might once have suited Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Master teachers in a fancy prep school, they challenge each other and their students to a school-wide competition to provide an answer. Will words or pictures prevail? It's hard to find genuinely witty, intelligent, and challenging dialogue in films these days. We don't seem to have the time for it, but it permeates words and pictures. The cliches are there, but heck, ignore them and enjoy the philosophical chatter and Juliette Binoche's own paintings. Words and pictures, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today is author J.D., as in John, D. Rachel. Now, before we begin our second segment with John Rachel, another website I'd like you to be aware of is http colon backslash backslash peace dividend dot us. That's P E A C E D I V I D E N D dot us. Again, I'll mention it before the end of our show. John is with us, on the phone with us, from Japan. There's a 13-hour difference, so he is literally in the middle of the night there talking to us. Uh, John, uh, first of all, tell us, I mean, you, you live in on an island in Japan, is that right? And are you an American citizen, and how does all that work? Well, I am still an American citizen. I, I left in 2006 for personal reasons. Uh, mainly to fulfill the dream I had had as an adolescent to see the world. So I've been in 34 countries since I left in 2006. And, and Japan was just a stop on the way, but I really fell in love with the country. The people here are very, very kind. Uh, they're very intelligent, and uh, it's a beautiful country. And now I'm married to a Japanese lady, so mm. I'm, I'm really situated here. Yes, I am still a citizen. In fact, I just sent in my absentee ballot a couple days ago to vote in the primary. So, uh, And I'm very proud to be an American. But I have to say, living outside of the country, I get a very, very different version of the news mm-hmm. than what I see being reported in America. Because mm-hmm. I follow both. I follow the news from all these different international sources, and I follow American you know, the usual CNN and yeah. MSNBC, Huffington Post and Washington Post, New York Times. I read all that stuff, mm-hmm. and it's amazing what a different version of the news I get. You know, I'm not surprised to hear that. I've traveled, uh, not recently, but, but was uh, for a, a good many, many years, traveled to Europe, at least Western Europe, oh, I would say the month of August for every year for decades, and... Uh, the questions I got, 
And this was long before 9-11. But the questions I got were very simple, human, personal, individual to individual, just to understand things, even like the weather. And because, of course, when it rains in, when it rains in Germany, it rains in all of Germany. But when it rains in America, I would never forget this conversation. And, and my back in those days, my German, French, and Italian were much better because I was a vocal graduate from Peabody. But, but still, it, they weren't perfect, you know. Operatic terms, you know, <laughs> lyrics, they, they were pretty good. Anyway, but I understand what you're saying, and, I, and I, I think it's important that we make the point that we get from NBC, ABC's, well, CBS, I'm not sure what we get, but from NBC, ABC, CNN, uh, MSNBC, we get repetition, we get gossip, but whatever we get, it is more often than not very different from what I mean, you can turn on the BBC late at night and uh, NPR and you'll, who knows? There's a lot of lot of things going on out there. But back to us. Let us first get back our country, which sounds so much like Trump. You know, but it's a legitimate thing for any any spot on the political spectrum. I think America is great, but it's, we have work to do. Let's put it that way. Having work to do, having to work to keep the greatness greatness is about generosity and happiness and mutual respect and well i don't need to tell you i want to talk now about the peace dividend but also we kind of cut you off in talking about fighting for the democracy we deserve a very short uh, book you say a pamphlet even and i wonder about the financial reward for saving america from authoritarian rule by the corporate elite. Can you throw a little of that in? I know I've asked a lot, but we'll take it one at a time. And they're all connected, let's face it. I mean, if you, if voters unite behind a strategy contained in your short book, Fighting for the Democracy We Deserve, what do they get out of it? Well, they get, they get a say, a real say, not just a token say. They get a real say in the country that they leave to their children and their children's children. We all want... We all believe in this idea of government by the people or the people of the people. Yes. But it's not a fact anymore. It's not reality. Yeah. Reality is that there are a, a very tiny core of elite, rich and powerful, who really call the shots. Yes. And, and, and some of the shots they call are not pretty good for the rest of us, let's mm-hmm. face it. But one of the things I was going to say about the different version of the news I get. And and, it's, uh, and by the way, let, let me allude to what you were saying. When you travel around, I find so much commonality with people. Even if I can't speak their language, yes. guess what? They love their children. They love their families. They love their food. They love their time off. They love sunsets and they love sunrises. We all have a lot in common. And 95% of the world hates war. Mm-hmm. So the question I get from a lot of people is, what is wrong with America? What is wrong with you people? Mm-hmm. You're everywhere you go, you're starting wars. Everywhere I look, there's more military bases. You're, you know, you're destroying, I mean, right here in Japan, we got Okinawa, they're demonstrating against the, the, the base there. Yes. There's like six, six or eight major bases. People don't know this. There's like six or eight major American bases in Japan. Yes. They went over to South Korea and they destroyed a beautiful little island called Jeju so they could put another naval base. I mean, this is insanity. And that's what the rest of the world views 
America. A yes. lot of the world says, what is with all this militarism? So I started looking at the recent history of America, and I noted that in 1992, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and by the way, it was a long process. It kind of collapsed overnight, but it was a, it took several years. Yes. And during, if you remember, Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev had a great relationship, and they were reducing the nuclear arsenals, and America and Russia were starting to get along, and things started to look very, very positive for the world. It looks like we weren't going to have any more Cold War. And then, and then the Soviet Union just fell apart. Yes. So in 1992, and that was in December, we were celebrating the end of the Cold War. And one of the things that came out for the next several months and was part of the, shall we say, the conversation that we're having in America was something called the peace dividend. Now we didn't have to worry about big bad Russia anymore. Mm -hmm. We could take a lot of the money that we've been putting into the military and devote it to making America even a better place than it was. Mm -hmm. We could put all this money to work in our communities, our schools, our libraries, our parks, and make America a phenomenal place to live. Mm -hmm. Well, the peace dividend never happened. Yes. In fact, in 24 years, instead of the military budget being reduced, it actually went up. For 16 of the 24 years, it went up significantly. Mm. And so what happened, if you look at it, if I took, and I, I, just, I just did some arithmetic, I froze the military budget at 19, the level of 1992, I then calculated how much in excess of that we spent on defense. It came to two and a half trillion dollars. Wow. We, didn't, we didn't reduce the budget, we increased it by two and a half trillion dollars. Okay, what were we buying? We didn't have the Soviet Union anymore. Well, we, but oh, we had Iran. Then we had Iraq. And then we had Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And then we had Iraq again. And now we have Syria. In the meantime, we threw in Libya. We threw in a few other countries. Yes. So what? this is why the world thinks that America has gone insane. Because given the gift, the promise of peace, yes. we snatched war from the jaws of peace. Yes. Yes. Well... Now, on top of that, we fought two wars that were completely unnecessary. I, there's going to be a lot of patriotic Americans who are going to argue with this, but the fact is we didn't have to go after Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan because the Taliban government volunteered to turn him over to a third, third uh, country, a, a neutral country. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to go into Afghanistan. We know that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Exactly. We know that, that we know that both those wars were complete floods. That was another one point six trillion dollars we mm. wasted. Yes. This, this is breathtaking. Now I added all this up, and basically, in my view, and this is the concept that I push, called the peace dividend idea. We were promised a peace dividend in 1992, and in the meantime, 
the military has wasted $4.52 trillion of our tax money, completely thrown it out the window for no reason. Mm. In my view, they owe us that money. Yes. I and agree. so the peace dividend is the citizens saying, okay, you had your fun, you took our money and you blew it, but I'm sorry, we want it back. Yes. You've given us a broken economy, you've given us broken schools and broken bridges and broken roads. We want that money back. And Americans, because the taxes they paid into all this are in debt up to their eyebrows, you know, mm -hmm. we want that money back so we can start fixing our lives up. And it comes to, are you ready for this? I am. It comes, it comes to $18,024 per citizen. Wow. So the peace dividend is a demand that we get paid the peace dividend we were promised. Mm. So a family of four would get over $56,000. Mm. Yes. This would be a refund of all this money. <laughs> mm. So the peace dividend, we're asking for what they promised and asking to get back what they did with our money instead of keeping their promise. And by they, we mean the government, especially in the form of the Pentagon. But after all, the president is the commander in chief. So how do we go about this? Well, this is, I think it has to really, it has to come from one of two sources. Either we need a real peace candidate, mm -hmm. or it has to grow as a movement from within, uh, it has to grow uh, from a grassroots movement within the country. Uh -huh. And it's, it's, a, it's going to be, it's a very difficult sell because it's all you see on television, is all you see in the movies are the greater glory of militarism. And it's all we hear is we have to be afraid of uh, Iran and we have to be afraid of Syria and we have to be afraid of Saddam Hussein and now ISIS and who knows next. Yes. I guarantee you there will be somebody next yes. because that is the whole point. This whole waste. This enormous waste of money and resources and our future is predicated on the false idea, literally the fraudulent principle that we are at war with everybody in the world. Mm -hmm. If you could see how Russia actually behaved and understood and could get beyond all of this Putin demonizing and Russian hatred that's been spread through the media. Uh -huh. I read a whole different version of the news than anybody else. Uh -huh. I'll just give you one small example. I don't think it's appeared anywhere. When it was decided that Saudi Arabia, after we gave them, sold them big piles of weapons, to, they were going to attack Yemen. Yes. There were a lot of American citizens trapped there. Do you know the story? There were American citizens trapped in Yemen. Yes. And they called the embassy... And the State Department said, what are we going to do? we got to get out of here. And they said, well, we told you it was a dangerous area. I'm sorry, it's your problem. Oh, my God. Do you know that? Yeah, there were like 42 Americans stuck there. Do you know how they got out? They no. got out because Russia flew nine planes into Yemen and carted out all of the innocent foreigners that were there, including the 42 Americans, so that, that America wouldn't help. Russia flew them out of the country and mm. out of harm's way. Mm. See, you don't, you don't get that story. No, we don't. The other day, just two days ago,
ago, Obama made a speech about the enormous success that America and its partnering team of, of uh, military has achieved against ISIS in Syria and in Iraq. Yes. He never once mentioned Russia. Never once. Yet, it was Russia in the last five months that basically defeated ISIS. It wasn't the Americans and the French and the British who, I don't know what they've been doing for a year. But you see what I'm saying? We always get the news that Russia is bad, Russia caused this problem, Russia did this. Why? Because we need an enemy. And why do we need an enemy? So we can sell more arms, we can keep the military budget inflated. If Americans ever wake, wake up to this lie, then the peace dividend will be a very easy sell. You know, I, and and we're, we're so close to being out of, out of time, I don't want to start another, another big discussion, but I have to say... I agree with everything you say, and I'm especially annoyed that I didn't hear in the news what Russia did. I mean, it's like, uh, what's that movie, Ben Affleck, um, Argo, is it? Where the Americans yeah. saved saved all the Americans, and we all know that the British were more involved in that particular rescue than, than the Americans. But it, it's like we have to be the biggest and the best and the everything and sometimes you need help and you need allies and collaboration and it doesn't make you weak it makes you smart i think but but what i wanted to get to is that in addition to whatever any congress or president or supreme court or even pentagon is doing how do you feel in our last 3 minutes how do you feel about it's the people who make these these instruments of war who are pushing for the lie, pushing for the enemy so that they can make more money selling the missiles and the guns and the ships and the, you know, $4,000 toilets. What's your comment? Well, it, 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 it's a gigantic business, and the whole uh, government and industry, the military industry, is yes. just one huge revolving door. Yes. And, yeah, they're taking care of business. You know, it's, it's the old... If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. To these guys, I don't doubt their sincerity. Mm -hmm. I just doubt how well informed they are. And true political leadership looks beyond the different departments. Yes. Looks at the grander vision. What kind of America do we want? Do we want America with 800 bases around the world? Yes. Do we want America that's resented throughout the world? Do we want to be the enemy of the rest of the world? Because that's what that's what this all this militarism is creating. And as somebody who likes to travel, it's making life very uncomfortable. I don't know how to answer people when they say, What is with you people? What why do you have to build bases everywhere? We don't need you here. We can take care of things, you know. Well, I think so, I think the biggest motivation for building bases everywhere is to maintain the market flow for big business. And I think that does not excuse by any means the Pentagon for buying more than it needs. And it doesn't excuse a lack of vision by Congress who has the power to wage war or president from going, you know, we need to just reshuffle our priorities. What is it, as you say, who do we want to be at home and around the world, you know, and spend accordingly as, as any family would. But all right. 
we have we've run out of time, uh, John. But uh, let's tell people how they can get your books and find out more about you. Remind us again, uh, uh, John D. Rachel, jdrachel.com, is an author of it, yes, is an author of three books at least: the Peace Dividend, Fighting for the Democracy We Deserve, Taking Back Our Democracy, political blog. So tell us how we find you, how we find your blog, how we find more information about you, how do we follow you, all of that. Just go to jdrachel, just the letters, jdrachel.com, and there's a, it describes uh, how I ended up in Japan and my world travels, and uh, it also has all my books there and other things that I do. I've written seven novels, by the way, as well as, or, I mean, sorry, eight novels, as well as uh, two nonfiction books. So, yeah. uh, you know, I try to, spread my, my work around a little bit, but please go there. There's a little uh, button on the right-hand side that says contact me, write me, and I promise to write you back. And uh, if you're, any of you are ever in Japan, <laughs> give me a call. I love it when Americans visit here. Uh, it's a beautiful country, and I get to speak English. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, John D. Rachel, uh, it has been amazingly informative to have this conversation with you. You have opened, reopened my eyes. I, in my travels, I know I've heard enough of the kinds of questions that you have heard that um, we just don't get the whole story, but more to the point, why do we... Let's get those contracts, those candidate contracts, and hold them to uh, candidates, to, to doing what they say they're going to do when we give them the privilege of our vote. But let's also examine ourselves and say, as you say, who who do we want to be? What's our image? What's our reputation? What are we trying to, to project on the world? What does it mean to be America? Uh, it's not what's on cable TV, that's for sure. Okay, John. I don't think so. All right, well, thank you, Marcello. It's been a real pleasure. It's same here. And, uh, my and uh, like I say, if, you're, if you are ever in Japan, I'll show you the time here. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate it. As I said, my wife has a sister who lives in Tokyo, and we'll get over there and certainly find you. As promised, that website is http colon backslash backslash peace dividend US. That's peace, P-E-A-C-E, dividend, D-I-V-I-D-E-N-D, dot U-S. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. J.K. Simmons is an acting pro with long history. He first came to our attention as a menacing prison top in HBO's Oz, and then demonstrating comedy chops as Juno's imperturbable dad. Both were memorable turns for sure, but in Whiplash, Simmons becomes a star. Here he plays Fletcher, the horrifying instructor-director of a jazz ensemble at a prestigious music school. 
Fletcher wants to make a legend, and if he kills a few talented musicians along the way through his particularly brutal brand of mental torture, well, so be it. Andrew, played by Miles Teller, is a jazz drummer who plans to be one of the greats and will pay any price to get there. His deep commitment makes him vulnerable to Fletcher, who believes what doesn't kill him makes him stronger. Whiplash is a great indie film brought to us by first-time writer-director Damien Chazelle. It's sparse, each moment critical to its story. At Sundance, it won both the Audience Award and the prestigious Grand Jury Prize. Perhaps best of all, Whiplash flows to a satisfyingly redemptive conclusion that no one will see coming, ending on a note of lean perfection and leaving us with tantalizing questions, toe-dancing with our own perceptions of morality. Whiplash, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. GOP pathological path from peace dividend to Trump to toilets. While there's still more to life than Noam's river sticks, we need to see the reality that change, climate and otherwise, is upon us, whether we invest in the vision of sand hills, the hedge betting of turning the other cheek, or the chaotic volume of weekend bar hopping from Jekyll to Hyde to Zimmerman. Whether our 2016 American elections or global commitment to saving the very nature that sustains us, our strength is in numbers, but only strength of character is a solo. Unity of purpose is our best hope for a future we can believe in, for nevermore will tomorrow be a distant horizon. Life is either evolution or stagnation, a seat at a banquet or placemat with factory farms, assembly line pawns, slaughtering herds of steroidal hormone cancerous red or pink slime. Our greatest adversaries remain individual incivility, gender and racial inequality, climate and sexual injustice, and our history of a penchant for overwhelming application of self-serving military-industrial complex. Is it not now necessary to, as author John D. Rachel suggests, require signed contracts from all political candidates, or... Are we resigned to the breach of the trickle-down peace dividend promised with the demise of the Soviet Union? Stalin, Khrushchev, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, down. Kennedy, Reagan, Clinton, and our Olympic ice hockey team performing a drug-free miracle. Yet witnessing the Soviet Union divide and conquer itself, we failed to learn the lesson. So corporate America, yearning to keep the free, googled for whose war munitions to outprovide with our weapons of mass destruction. Listen, our grandparents were schooled to think such wars at home and abroad were essential acts of patriotic capitalism defeating communism then as in nineteen forty five there you go again world peace president reagan in the name of we the people proclaimed a peace dividend for all american citizens because we'd be saving so many tax dollars by living in peace 
Wall Street shuddered, but shaking off the Cold War ashes from its New World Order manual, it beamed at the prospect of civilization without civility, food without nutrition, and polluted water without the freedom to drink it for free. Middle-class employment replaced by Wall Street bonuses transformed the working class into angry government-denouncing mobs, blaming everyone save the new coke-stained redcoats of the Republican Party. The hard truth is... It's life that replaces old careers with new opportunities. Cave art with museums, riverboats with Vegas, coal with oil and oil with gas, typewriters with smartphones, gasoline with battery-operated cars, elevator operators disappeared. But trading in exceptionalism for imperialism and lying to ourselves about it? Not good. Life erupts from liquid assets and mutually beneficial alliances, but when blindsided by too many selfies, we fail to recognize the importance of nature to our survival, whether the cooperative work ethic of ants, the camaraderie and community service of bees, hummingbirds sharing the essence of life's nectar, family ties that bind all mammals together, water is the asset of life, and Nestle wants to own it. Sadly, some mark their freedom by defecating on the right for others to have a room to squat or not to urinate. But that doesn't make America strong any more than kneeling at a Pinocchio altar believing food stamp slashing speaker has any more soul than Donald Duck. If we are to be masters of our fate, our only hope is to vote justice for all. Whether blue collar or blue state, business suits or kinky boots, if we choose whining in our beer or wailing for the non-establishment Pied Piper du jour, know this, the captains courageous inside us deserts those who choose to follow the soulless. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.